there were two other males walking around in that house bleeding, and we have no idea who they are. And nobody's even tried to figure it out. It is just as likely that the, the profiles that are supposedly being labeled as coming from the quote-unquote real killer are actually the victim's blood himself. We on the other side are saying we have nothing to hide. Yens would love to see the test. Let's do further testing with new DNA technology, yet they refuse to do it. It's, it's really interesting to me that 35 years later, there's still new information coming out. You know, that's incredible to me. That, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I encourage you to keep going if you can. Since we started our investigation into the Haysom murders and Yen Soring's quest to prove his innocence, we heard over and over again that DNA testing could be the key to identifying who really killed Derek and Nancy Haysom. If nothing else, let's get this stuff back to the lab to get it checked out to make sure we don't have a murderer or two running around loose out here. That's one of the first things Chuck Reed told us when we started our podcast investigation in 2019. He was one of the lead investigators who arrived to the bloodbath at the Hasem's home in Bedford County in early April of 1985. He now believes Jens is innocent and that Bedford officials don't want to admit they got the case wrong. Chuck is one of several law enforcement officers convinced of Yen's innocence. Former Almoral County Sheriff Chip Harding has been one of Yen's most vocal and influential supporters. The naysayers and those that convicted him are looking for every excuse possible to say there's a mistake made here, it couldn't be, he's guilty. We on the other side are saying we have nothing to hide. Let's do further testing with new DNA technology, yet they refuse to do it. In 2009, the state conducted DNA testing on a few swabs of bloodstains from the Haysom crime scene that had been discovered at the Virginia Department of Forensic Science in an old case file. Some of the swabs were labeled type O blood. That's Yen's blood type. But the partial profiles developed from the testing didn't match Yen's DNA. And another swab of AB blood, thought to have come from Nancy Haysom, yielded a partial DNA profile that seemed to have come from a man. Two DNA experts hired by Yen's team claimed this was evidence that two unidentified men had bled at the crime scene. But no additional testing was done on other evidence stored in Bedford County. And that is what Yen's team has been pushing for. And there are well over 200 items that we feel like should be retested. Chip and another retired detective, Richard Hudson, have spent hundreds of hours reviewing the case and believe the evidence suggests the real killers got away with it. There's two guys bleeding in there, and it's not Derek Hazeman, it's not Ian Soaring. In 2020, we asked one of Soaring's DNA experts, Dr. Thomas McClintock at Liberty University, if Bedford should conduct new DNA testing. He said yes. But that would be trying to find the truth. And I don't think Bedford County is going to release those samples. Yen's attorney, Steve Rosenfield, asked Dr. McClintock, Richard, and Chip to review the case as Yen's appealed for a pardon from the Virginia governor in 2016. Steve is so convinced of Yen's innocence that he's worked pro bono for more than a decade to help clear his name. As Yen's lawyer, I have requested that everything be, everything that has been retained in evidence to today be DNA tested. Sheriff Harding and Detective Hudson have 
combined in asking that everything be tested. And to this day, nobody will tell us whether anything has been tested for the first time or retested. Their repeated public pleas for DNA testing and insistence on Yen's innocence, amplified by powerful figures like music mogul Jason Flom and best-selling author John Grisham, both board members of the Innocence Project, seem to fall on deaf ears in Bedford County, to Chip Harding and others' dismay. There's vast amounts of blood that could be and should be tested to yield better profiles. Our argument when we went in and talked to the Commonwealth Attorney is, one, you need to ask for retesting in multiple test sites because we believe you've got an unsolved homicide. So we say you ought to reopen this case and ask the lab to retest all this DNA. And they didn't want to have anything to do with any of it. The Commonwealth's attorney in Bedford is Wes Nance. He has the authority to reopen the case and request new DNA testing in the Haysom murders. But when we spoke with him by phone in 2020, he told us he believed Bedford County got it right with Yen's conviction, and the improper way the evidence had been stored and handled over the years meant new DNA testing couldn't show if anyone else was at the scene. Unfortunately, the retesting wouldn't necessarily answer the questions we would have had from the case. Yen's experts disagreed with Wes, and we'd already had some luck with DNA testing without Bedford's help. In 2020, we'd obtained DNA samples that allowed us to eliminate three alternate suspects as contributors to the crime scene DNA. The drifters, William Shiflett and Robert Albright, had seemed like the most likely culprits since they'd been convicted of a similar stabbing a week after the Hastings were killed and just 30 miles away. Shiflett's son had given permission for DNA testing on a blood sample taken during his father's autopsy. Albright had requested his own DNA from the state databank and given it to us for comparison. The other alternate suspect, first accused by Yen's team at his 1990 trial, was Jim Farmer, a fellow UVA student and a Hasem family friend. Farmer died in 2014, but we were able to use a close family member's DNA to rule him out as well. That meant all the alternate suspects named by Yen's team were eliminated through DNA. But could we get answers about who was at the crime scene through new testing on crime scene evidence? Yen's team claimed Bedford County would never allow it, and West Nance certainly seemed resistant to the idea. But we weren't ready to give up on our search for the truth in the case without making our own push, and that's what we've been doing for the past year. It started in November 2020, when Courtney and Rachel drove back to Bedford County to meet with West Nance. Are we just going to go to his office? That was the plan. Yeah. yeah. Where are you now? Um, it says I'm five minutes away. Wes's office is on the third floor of the Bedford County Courthouse, the same building where Elizabeth Hasem entered her guilty pleas and where Jens was convicted at trial in 1990. We'd spoken with Wes at length by phone on multiple occasions. This was our first time meeting him in person. He wasn't involved in the original investigation or prosecution, and we wanted to understand how he'd become so certain of Yen's guilt. Wes was a young teen in the Lynchburg area when the Haysom murders dominated the news cycle. As he'd later tell us, watching the televised trial at home, he was inspired to become a lawyer by the performance of prosecutor Jim Updike, now the circuit court judge in Bedford. Bedford County was one of the first jurisdictions in the Commonwealth that allowed cameras in the courtroom. So you actually got to see prosecutors in action on the evening news. And one of those individuals was Jim Updike. So uh, seeing him 
um, fighting for justice, fighting for accountability. Uh, it made an impression on me at that young age. Updike has been a towering figure in the Bedford courthouse for decades, well above six feet with a sharp wit and a southern drawl. Wes is less physically imposing than Updike. He's shorter and appears professorial, with a beard and a measured way of speaking. Their styles in the courtroom are as different as their appearances. I remember him being a very fiery prosecutor. Now, I'm not necessarily that, uh, so I didn't style myself after him. Every prosecutor sort of has to find their own voice. Wes has been Bedford County's Commonwealth attorney since 2016, choosing a career of public service after attending the University of Virginia for undergrad and Wake Forest University School of Law. A handwritten sticky note on his computer says, do the right thing, always. We believed DNA testing on evidence in this case would be the right thing. But could we convince Wes? We were ready to make our case. Our meeting with him lasted more than an hour and he laid out concerns he'd held for years and that he would repeat to us in the coming months. The first potential problem he mentioned was improper storage and handling of the evidence. There's a video of a member of the defense team showing Miss Hasem's uh, nightgown by pulling it out of the packaging without any gloves on. You now have contamination of that item. Wes warned that contamination could result in a mix of DNA profiles, not only from people who were at the crime scene, but also all of the attorneys, court staff, and journalists who'd handled the evidence in the subsequent years. We don't have an accounting of the people who have had access to it. There wasn't a log kept of who and came and looked at the evidence. And certainly we don't have DNA profiles for those people or the ability to track them down and get their DNA profiles. So you might answer a question of the partial DNA profile that was gleaned from the crime scene, but I think you're then opening up yourself to a whole litany of concerns um, of contamination and that the touch DNA or the minor contributor is in person that the defense would rightfully try to claim as the true killer, but is just as likely a person to have touched it in the 1990s, in the early 2000s, early 2010s. Contamination wasn't Wes's only concern. He also talked about the pain new testing could bring for the victim's family and the factors a prosecutor must weigh in any quest for justice. I'm trying to do the right thing. Um, And if I thought I could get straight answers for him and his team, By sending this off for analysis, I would. If I make that decision, am I causing further trauma to the victims and the the survivors, the family members of the victims in this case? Yes. Um, And so you try to weigh all of that stuff and somehow balance it out to try to find the right answer and the right path forward. Despite his concerns, West told us he was open to the possibility of testing, and he expressed curiosity about what new DNA technology might be able to accomplish. He'd repeat that sentiment in later interviews as well. If there's a way to legitimately get results from 1985 and that particular horrific night in 1985, I think you've got to take those steps forward. We left West's office that afternoon with a mission 
to find a lab on the cutting edge of science and convince West that new DNA testing could be helpful in putting questions about the Hasem case to rest. Our online search led us to Othram, a Texas-based company with a website banner that says, Justice Through Genomics, and a button that says, Solve Your Case. We clicked on it and set up a consultation. A few days later, we were on the phone with Othram's CEO, Dr. Dave Middleman. This is David from Othram. Okay, cool. Nice to meet you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, sure. How can I help you guys? Othram had been involved in solving some high-profile cold cases across the country, including the mostly harmless hiker case, an unidentified male whose remains were discovered in a national park in Florida in 2018. The company has a separate website called dnasolves.com that combines crowdfunding, volunteer data, and cutting-edge genomics to solve previously unsolvable cases. Dr. Middleman was enthusiastic as he told us how far DNA science has come in the past few years and how quickly it continues to advance. We've helped crack some cases that, you know, even two years ago couldn't be cracked. Actually, even last year couldn't be cracked. Most of the cases we get are cases that have been tested elsewhere and have failed. So we have, we have cases that failed in 2019 that we solved in 2020. What do you do differently? So, so a couple things. The first thing is, we're using a different platform for testing. We use uh, what's called DNA sequencing. We're the only ones in the United States to do this in-house. And, and we can collect massive amounts of data, even if we have just terrible inputs. So evidence that would be unsuitable at other, at other testing facilities, maybe because there's not enough DNA or it's too degraded, um, we, we, can, we can work through evidence that just otherwise would be unsuitable. So the first thing we do different is we can unlock information from evidence that's essentially unusable elsewhere. The second thing that we do is instead of collecting, you know, 20 forensic markers, which is what the, the traditional kind of path is, we collect tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of markers. So that opens up the opportunity to do lots of things. We can do ancestry testing. We can do, um, you know, we can look for relationships and work uh, identities through records research and what people are talking about as uh, as genealogy, that kind of stuff. And so so even if someone's not in a, in a database, say the CODIS database, um, you know, we can, we, can, we can do a lot of work to, to produce identifying information to find that person. So, so those are the key things that make us different. We can, we can accept evidence that others can't, and then we generally collect a lot more information, and, and that information can be used to derive identity even when you don't have, um, you know, you don't have uh, the information that you need. Dr. Middleman said he'd be happy to take a look at the Hasem case, but would need written authorization from West Nance. We sent an email to Wes and quickly got his permission. We had an online folder full of forensic reports, an evidence list, and crime scene photos that Jens had shared with us. We sent it to Othram. And then we waited. Dr. Middleman was traveling the country, doing interviews with Dateline, CBS Sunday Morning, and forensic files. When we finally got him on another call, we got disappointing news. The DNA profiles stored in the Virginia State Data Bank and the DNA profiles we developed from the alternate suspects weren't compatible with the type of DNA profiles Othram develops. We don't, we don't produce any STR profiles. So if you wanted to know if STR profiles matched, then you'd use, use a standard forensic lab um, that has like an accreditation. So we don't do any of that at our facility. The news was deflating. After months of waiting to talk to Dr. Middleman, poring over evidence, and hoping Othram was the key to unlocking the mystery of the Hasem case and the unidentified DNA, it seemed like we might have hit a dead end. 
Dr. Middleman had a suggestion. We, we work with some really awesome folks. Um, have you heard of DNA Solutions? Yeah. Well, are they in Oklahoma? Yes. Yeah, we've used them. We've sent okay. DNA to them to create you know SMM profiles. We had to laugh. Apparently, we'd already worked with a cutting-edge lab, the one that had been recommended to us by the forensic scientist hired by Yen's team, Dr. Thomas McClintock. A year before, we sent the DNA samples of the drifter William Shiflett and Jim Farmer's family member to DNA Solutions for the creation of the STR profiles Dr. McClintock had used to rule them out as suspects in the Hasem murders. In the next few weeks, we had several calls with the lab director at DNA Solutions, James Anstead, who used the crime scene reports, evidence lists, and photos to create a list of about two dozen items that had the best chance of providing clear information from DNA testing. We had a Zoom meeting with our attorney, Bruce Williamson, to go over the list. There is um, weather stripping from the front door where all that the O blood was found, and it has fingerprint impressions on it, but they weren't good enough to actually um, get fingerprints. But that means somebody touched it. So we're wondering if we could get DNA. Right. Okay. And then there's uh, several hairs. Hair. Yeah. There's hair in kitchen, hair in the dining room leading to the living room. And there's also a hair that was in the master bedroom sink. That's the one that everybody talks about. And that, I mean, I've heard about that hair. Yes. Um, Because it was in the sink that had like, blood stains in it and they luminol the shower and it looked like someone who had been really bloody had taken a shower in the master bedroom bathroom. So that hair, that hair could have been, yeah, could have been left right at the time of somebody washing up. We wanted to test as many items as possible. And as we discussed the evidence, Dr. Anstead identified as most likely to yield DNA profiles. We noted the items he had excluded. One thing he said, we definitely could not get DNA that would be helpful from would be like the victim's clothes. Cause they would just be soaked in blood and it would be hard to find anybody else's DNA. Plus they've been handled so much. Mm-hmm. Our final list included 25 pieces of evidence, hair, blood stains, a Dr. Pepper can, the contents of a trash can in the master bedroom, including several empty beer cans, the packaging that held the blood stained swabs stored at the department of forensic science and the cigarette butts, found outside the Hasem's back door. Eight months after our first meeting with Wes Nance, we had a Zoom call with him, Dr. Anstead, and Bruce to see if what we learned about the new DNA technology could convince Wes to release evidence from the Hasem case to the lab for examination and potential testing. The first concern Dr. Anstead addressed on the Zoom call was the contamination of evidence. There's a couple of ways to mitigate that. So obviously, if you're talking about a... um, a piece of evidence that has blood in it. Um, it is possible to surface clean the material if the blood's soaked in and try to remove um, the extraneous mm. contamination that might come from that touch DNA and then do an extraction where you cut a piece and you actually put it in solution. In addition to the dozens of items of evidence still stored in Bedford County that had never been tested for DNA, we confirmed that the Department of Forensic Science had kept some of the evidence that had been tested in 2009. And we do know that the samples that were tested by DFS in 2009, I think they all were used up, but we had talked about possibly testing the tubes that they were Uh held in or um, the swabs. And can you explain, Dr. Anstead, how that's even, like that blows my mind that that's even possible. 
Yeah, so um, testing's got more sensitive now. We have a couple of different techniques for testing things that uh, you couldn't have tested before. So um, for swabs, those old swab boxes, occasionally the swabs are put in wet and you can look with an ALS to see if there's any staining on the inside. But we also have like a micro vacuum. And so when you dry those um, swabs and they sit in the box for a long time, you often get biological material that flakes off. And so that micro, micro vacuum will pick up any, any cells that essentially have fallen off and adhere to the box. We have occasionally been able to get a sample from a swab stick to, you can't tell till you look, obviously. The unidentified DNA profiles from the 2009 testing were developed from the old swabs discovered at DFS. Even though the cotton portion of the swabs had been used up during that testing, Dr. Anstead's microvacuum could pick up cells from the stick or the container that had held the swab and develop more complete DNA profiles. That could help answer the biggest question remaining in the case. Did the DNA come from two unidentified men, or did it all come from the victim, Derek Hasem? The possibility of creating a complete DNA profile for Derek Hasem intrigued Wes. I think that's the crux of it, isn't it? And uh, you, uh, that's something that in no way do I have any concern about hindering. Um, it's the question of, can you look to try to strengthen that profile and bring some answers with, without um, bringing new questions into play? And you know, something that the doctor said really interested me, and that's the idea of surface cleaning the item. And you know, that at first blush, where it would potentially eliminate contaminants, greatly interests me. But I wonder if you're really setting yourself up to be um, attacked by that or, you know, because you don't want to hide the truth, but you don't want to get any false positives either. And would an attempt to say, listen, the only thing we're interested in is getting the major contributor profile to Mr. Hasem's clothing. And because of that, we are going to clean the surface because we don't know who all touched it since its introduction into evidence in, what was it, 1989. Um, would team soaring, and I'm just playing with generalities here, say, well, you're trying to hide the truth from the public by uh, cleansing the DNA profiles of the people who obviously did it? Um, you could do both. You could pick, you could divide a sample that would, I think that would be a reasonable, defensible position to do. Would be like, we're concerned about contamination, so we're going to. Um, set like try and essentially make two samples one has everybody in it that could possibly have anything to do with it or mm -hmm. might have touched it and then do one where you've tried to eliminate surface contamination and I think that would be a good approach for a sample like that. Dr. Anstead suggested a path that would get the evidence to the lab and get us a step closer to testing. What we could do is we could do an additional examination and we could set forward a like a written proposal for testing and that you guys could approve. And I think that would probably be, and object to, and I think that would probably be the, the probably the, the safest way to do this is so we do an initial examination and just make sure see what's there um, and what might be tested. A plan was taking form. 
we would send evidence to DNA Solutions for an initial examination. Wes would review and we would review Anstead's conclusions about the suitability of each item for testing. Only when all of us agreed would DNA Solutions proceed with testing on any item. Wes had one more question about the handling of the evidence from the time it left the courthouse evidence storage through its potential testing at DNA Solutions. You know, I keep thinking about my presumption about the correctness of the case. What if we open Pandora's box and it shows a result completely inconsistent with my presumption? Are there procedures in place to retain the integrity of the chain of custody of these items once they get to your lab doctor? So if the true killer is revealed, I would have ability to proceed if I felt it likely to bring some closure to the parties involved. So what Wes wanted to know was, if what he called the true killer was discovered, would he be able to bring charges? Absolutely, yeah. So we're at, uh, we're at FBI QAS accredited lab, so we follow all the appropriate like chain of custody rules. Um, we keep the evidence. We'd spent so many months building to this moment. We had answers about new DNA testing technology and a process we hoped would ease West's concerns. At the end of our Zoom call, our attorney, Bruce, asked the big question. So what do you think, Wes? We good to go? Well, uh, uh, that's a loaded question, Bruce. Um, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> it, might, it might be jumping ahead, too, but I thought I'd ask. You know. I, I think that's a, a, a decent um way of handling it. And um, I, I think I'm fairly comfortable with that. Wes wasn't agreeing to reopen the case or use state lab resources for the new DNA testing, but we could petition the court and use a private lab. Our attorney told us a judge would be far more likely to approve their request with Wes's signature, and Wes agreed to sign our petitions. It took us four months to create the documents we would file in Bedford County requesting the evidence be released for possible DNA testing. We painstakingly identified each piece of evidence by the number it was assigned, when it was collected from the crime scene, and matched that to a separate identification that it was given during the trial. Our attorney, Bruce, located an independent forensic evidence technician who could package the evidence for shipment and protect the chain of custody. We wrote a detailed affidavit describing our investigation and the reasons we believed testing should be conducted. On August 23, 2021, 10 months after we first sat in West Nance's office, we drove back to the Bedford County Courthouse with two petitions in hand, one for the evidence held in Bedford's circuit court storage and a separate petition for the evidence still at the Department of Forensic Science. And we've got a copy to deliver to West Nance. And then I guess what we need to do with these is just um, deliver the payment for filing. And then we need to swap out the copies um, of these things. We need to sign a few things and then we'll get the copies that Wes has signed and then we'll take all of it to the clerk's office and get it filed and hopefully hopefully get a hearing or get a judge's ruling on this in not, uh, not too long. How are you feeling? Oh, this is really, this is, I mean, this is two years of work. So much painstaking, tiny step after tiny step to get to this point. But it's pretty amazing, really. 
that we're here. Like we didn't know that this day would ever come. So here we are. We felt like our petitions were thorough and thoughtful. We had Wes's signature and now our work was in the hands of Judge Jim Updike, the prosecutor in Jens's trial. Next on Small Town, Big Crime. Never before seen investigative files. She was anti-Christ and cuttering her, cutting herself and smearing blood on her and her clothes and wearing them around. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And an update on our pursuit of DNA testing. So Judge Updike got back to us. Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network, Common House in Charlottesville. Now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a Common House membership. With other locations in Richmond and Chattanooga, Tennessee, thousands of creative types, entrepreneurs, and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections, both personal and professional. Each location offers gorgeous, comfortable spaces for conversation, quiet spots for working, and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking. A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself. And if you spot us there, say hello.